We're continuing our study in the book of Micah, and the topic that Micah addresses here is extraordinarily relevant to uh, our day and time, because what you're going to see is that Micah is going to talk about the problem of injustice. And that's what you have happening in the days of Micah is that there is injustice that is running rampant and you have a concern on the heart of Micah as to what is God going to do about this and what are the people of God supposed to do about this. And these three chapters in describing God's will in regards to this topic, I think uh, is not only an important message in general, but has certainly become a uh, of greater interest in our culture at, the, the, at this time and in this day. And so as we look at Micah chapters 3 through 5, we're going to get to spend some time in talking about uh, Micah and what he's ultimately pointing forward to and what hope would look like, especially living in a difficult time like he lived. You'll notice in Micah chapter 3, probably the best summary of the chapter is, There's no justice anywhere. (laughs) There is no justice anywhere. It is a a lack of justice happening all over the place. The first three verses certainly give a a powerful image in regards to the leaders of Israel. We're told in verse 1 where he says there, Listen, you rulers of the house of Israel, the heads of Jacob, should you not know justice? The very first thing to come out of, of Micah's mouth is, as, as the leaders of Israel, you should be the ones who are upholding justice. That's one of the purposes of government. And you see that description here. Notice the imagery when he says there in verse 2, You who hate good and love evil, who tear the skin off my people and the flesh off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people, flay their skin off of them, break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a kettle, like flesh in a cauldron. Does that give you a vivid imagery of how wonderful the leaders are of Israel and how they are treating people? It is as if they're just being stripped bare and are left raw. And it's a a horrifying image that is given about these leaders in that ultimately what their desire is, is for their own selfish gain. Um, One of those, if you had time, but you know, Romans 13, the whole point of governing rulers and leaders is to protect the innocent and to be able to execute justice to those who are unrighteous and evildoers. And here you see in these first three verses, the leaders are the ones who love evil. They hate good. They don't know justice at all and are using their power to be able to harm the people of Israel. In verses uh, 5, 5 to 8, He then shifts even more and says, not only are the leaders participating in this wickedness and this injustice, but the prophets are the same as they lead the people astray. Verse five, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against those who put nothing in their mouths. That's funny. (laughs) Here are prophets, if you pay them enough, If you pay him well, he'll tell you great stuff. 
But if you don't pay him, he's going to tell you, oh, you know, curses upon you and it's going to be terrible. So he knows the prophets are ultimately giving messages depending upon their, their payment based on how much they receive. That'll dictate the kind of message that they are going to give. And so he describes in verses six through eight, the, the darkness that's going to come up over the, these prophets and the judgment that's going to happen because they have spoken falsely about God. And this is going to be the end of the false prophets in verses 9 through 12 back to the leaders listen to them again in verse 9 here you rulers of the house of Jacob chiefs of the house of Israel who hate justice and pervert all equity who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with wrong what an image just they hate justice They hate what is right. They hate equity. And the picture of building Jerusalem on blood and on wrong. Verse 11, the rulers give judgment for a bribe. The priests teach for a price. Its prophets give oracles for money. And yet they lean on the Lord and say, surely the Lord is with us. No harm shall come upon us. Even though they hate justice and are loving wickedness and are interested in basically doing good for a price, he says, they think God's with them. And when in fact God says in verse 12, as this part of the message ends, Jerusalem is going to become a heap of ruins. It's going to be the end for Zion. It's going to be end for Israel and Judah because of the lack of justice. Now, what is going to happen then? What are these people supposed to do? What is God going to do about a situation where here are the people of God and rather than upholding justice and doing right, there is rampant wickedness and injustice. Notice now in chapters four and five, the pictures that God gives about his solution to these problems. Chapter four, verse one. In the days to come, The mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised up above the hills. People shall stream to it and many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord of the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Notice the picture that then is given in response to this is that God is going to establish a kingdom so that all peoples will desire to stream to it. In fact, notice the motivation. Verse one says peoples are going to stream to it. Many nations shall come. But why do they want to come to the house of the Lord? Verse two, it says that they want to be taught God's ways and they want to walk in God's paths. One of the things that is really interesting that you see Micah prophesying, and this is true not only of the sin of injustice, but in regards to wickedness in general, is that as evil goes on, it is supposed to cause people to seek the Lord. It's supposed to cause them to stop thinking that they are going to find relief and help in this world. Through physical means, 
through human beings or through governments. You're not going to find it. It doesn't matter what you try to do. It's not going to happen. And there's supposed to be almost a sense of futility that exists so that people will say, nations will say, we need to go to the house of the Lord. We need to be taught God's ways. We need to listen to what he has to say. And in that, we will turn our dependence away from human wisdom and away from human governments and away from these leaders and away from these false prophets and want to hear truly what God has to say. In fact, that picture is pushed forward in verse three, where it says that God is going to judge between many peoples and arbitrate between strong nations far away and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore, but they will all sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree. No one will make them afraid for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken for all the people's walk, each in the name of its God. But we will walk in the name of the Lord, our God forever and ever. Notice the picture that's given here because I think it is important and powerful of what God says. First, God says, here's what I'm going to do is I'm going to judge all peoples. Verse three, no one's avoiding the judgment of God. God is going to judge people and nations. But notice that the picture then is important because it doesn't say that then all the nations are going to exist in peace one day and then God will rule in righteousness. And I think this is very important because sometimes I think there's this mentality of that what we need to do is we're going to go and fix all of the world's ills as the people of God. And we're going to be able to right all the wrongs and we're going to straighten everything out. And once we get this earth straightened all out, then God will be able to fulfill his task and rule in righteousness and accomplish this. What I want you to see is the text says there's only one person who's going to be able to bring justice and create peace. God. We can't do it. We are unable to do it. That's why the picture is this. God judges the people, imposes his will, and then the nations exist in peace. His rule is what's going to cause it, not us. We're not going to be able to bring this about on our own. And I think that is such an important statement that is being made by God is that this is a role that only he can accomplish. He will judge and he will usher in the peace. He will usher in righteousness. He will usher in justice. And that's what you're seeing this image even given in verse four. And they will all sit under their own vines and under their own fig trees. Now I know that's what you've been wanting to do all your life. Sit under your own vine and under your own fig tree. (laughs) This is an important metaphor, though, that's given here. It's an illustration that when Solomon was establishing his rule, and really in 1 Kings 4, you are arguably at the apex of Solomon's reign, where the nations are coming in and they are listening to the wisdom of Solomon and peace is going forth and the the borders are expanding of the kingdom. It is very much a picture of what God's kingdom was to look like as the son of David, Solomon, sat on the throne. Of course, that all falls apart because of Solomon's sin. But in the moment, we're told that in Solomon's reign, 
Everyone was sitting under their own vine and under their own fig tree. You know, what do you mean by that? But that they were experiencing and enjoying God's blessings, God's protection, God's provision, God's prosperity, God's rest, and God's peace. And that is what is being depicted here as God rules in righteousness. That God is going to be the solution to the problem. He is going to be the one who will bring in his kingdom and be able to deal with the enemies and put down the nations that stand against him. And what our job is as the people of God is ultimately to confess our helplessness and point to Christ. That's ultimately what is happening is that here we are saying, yes, the world is wicked. Yes, it is terrible. And you want to know the solution to that problem? There's only one solution. Jesus. We won't be able to solve it. We won't be able to end it. But it will be God who will be able to do it. And so what we do is we acknowledge our futility in this world as we try to do what is right and recognize that it is only God who can bring about these righteous judgments. And I think it is so important that that is our response as the people of God is that we are always pointing people to saying, that's why you need God. That's why you need God. God is the answer. God is the solution. He is the place to turn. We need to go to him and we need to learn his ways and walk in his paths. He is the answer to these problems that that so often we see in terms of wickedness and sin in the world. Because only God has the power to solve this. And only God has the power to right the wrongs that happen in our world today. And so you have this beautiful picture because you see that in verse 5 where you say, in verse 5, the peoples, they walk each to the name of their gods. But what do we understand We will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. We know that that is the path that we must follow and in the path that we must must walk. That is the first picture that's given. Notice the second picture that God gives and is a picture of restoration. Listen to verse six. In that day, says the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. The lame I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion now and forevermore. Did you catch the strange image that is given here? He says what he's going to do is he's going to gather all of the lame and make them a strong nation. That sounds like a good plan if you know. Ready for battle, strong nation, get all the lame people and get all of the outcasts and gather them all together and make them the strong nation. But that's what God says he's going to do. Those who are lame, those who are the outcasts, they are going to be the remnant. They are going to be the people of God. And notice the image that's given in verse 9 when he says, Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished that these pains have seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter Zion, like a woman in labor. And now you shall go forth from the city and camp in the open country. You shall go to Babylon, but there you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hands of your enemies. The restoration is going to happen, but suffering first. 
that'd be a whole other great lesson to talk about. God always operates that way. Great restoration to come. Great hope in the future. Suffering now. And that's what he's telling them. Here in the midst of talking about restoration and sitting under your own vine and your own fig tree and following the ways of the Lord, he then turns around and says, but you're going to Babylon. But you're going to be rescued from Babylon. But you are going to go to Babylon. And so he uses the imagery of pain like one of a woman in labor and the pain that she goes through. But in that pain that they're going through, there is a hope that is in the future. That there's going to be worth that pain as that unfolds. That you will see then the hope to come. That God is going to restore his people. And God is going to be with them and make them this great nation. Notice verse 11. Now many nations are assembled against you saying, let her be profaned and let our eyes gaze upon Zion, but they do not know the thoughts of the Lord and they do not understand his plan that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. The nations are going to think this is the end of God's people. And God says, no, this has always been my plan in the first place. This fits very well with what we talked about in our class this morning, talking about the sovereign power of God. If here is what God is at work and here's what God is accomplishing. And the nations are going to think this is the end of God's people. And God goes, no, no, I'm putting them through this suffering so that I will have my remnant. I am making this strong nation and they will belong to me. I will make them strong again. And the judgment will go against those who stand. Against him. The second picture that he then gives here is one ultimately of restoration that God is going to deal with these situations. He will deal with these enemies. He is going to right wrongs and he now has a people who has been restored for him. Now, here's, I hope, what your big question in all that. How is God going to do all this? These are huge images of restoration and huge images of hope of how God is going to take care of all of this and deal with this wickedness. And I want you to notice chapter 5, verse 2, because here is the picture of how ultimately God is going to accomplish this. Chapter 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, who are one of the little clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to rule in Israel whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor is brought forth, and the rest of his kindred shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall live secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be the one of peace." Notice all of this hope is funneling around there is going to be a ruler who's going to come out of Bethlehem. And if you've been in the pews long enough, you remember Matthew chapter 2. Or Matthew chapter 2 quotes this very text and applies it to Jesus as the very ruler who would come from this insignificant place, a place like Bethlehem. And the origin of ancient times connects him ultimately to David because David came from Bethlehem. And so and to speak of him who comes from this ancient times and say, this is what we've been waiting for. We've been waiting for this David to come again, this son of David to rule in righteousness, which is how the leaders even read that text in John chapter seven. They're arguing over how could Jesus possibly be the one who be considered the Messiah 
And they're realizing, now there is something about a Bethlehem. (laughs) There is something about that. And that connection to David. Well, Jesus is the one who fulfills that. And the imagery is so beautiful that he is going to come. He will take his stand. He will feed his sheep. And his people will now be secure because this shepherd king will be great. You see that in verse 4. They will live secure for now. He shall be great to the ends of the earth and he will be the peace for his people. The hope that God puts forward again and again and again in terms of our troubles and difficulties in life is the arrival of Christ. He is always the answer to the problems that are undergoing in various people's lives or in nations or in cultures or on the globe over and over again. That's the answer put forward. And it should be interesting for us to see that as chapter 3 describes, here are the people of God, Israel, and they're full of wickedness to such a degree that it seems that no one is doing right. God's answer for hope is in his kingdom and in his righteous shepherd, King Christ. That is what is being pictured for us. Let's talk about the middle of verse 5 and and, and also verse 6 because... There's a lot of struggle about what happens here because at the middle of verse five, it then says, and if the Assyrians come into our land and tread upon our soil, we will raise against them seven shepherds and eight installed as rulers. And they shall rule the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod shall be drawn with the sword and they shall rescue us from the Assyrians if they come into our land or tread within our border. Well, that felt jarring. Here we are moving along messianically in regards to this great kingdom being established and everyone under their vine and under their own fig tree. And here comes the Messiah in Christ, born of Bethlehem, standing and feeding his sheep, his people living securely, peace being brought. And we will beat the Assyrians. What's happening right here? Uh, Some people see this as potentially pointing to Hezekiah and the beating back of the Assyrians. I think that really jars our context way out. One thing to keep in mind is that Assyria does stand as a reference for or a symbol of wicked nations. Assyria early on becomes that Babylon takes on that moniker later on as an image of the world nations and wicked nations that stand against God. And I think it is far better to see the picture here that as Christ comes and establishes his rule, that he is conquering nations. He is destroying them. Any nation that stands up against God and his people are ultimately brought to their knees. And so the picture is given there in verses five and six is that if they come into our land, we're going to be victorious. We are going to win. And that picture carries on through the rest of of this chapter because you'll notice we are still looking out to the future. Verse 7 speaks of the remnant of Jacob surrounded by peoples and, and the blessings that are going to come. Remnant language is being used pointing forward to this this great hope. But the final image that's laid out here Listen to what it says in verse 10. And in that day, says the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you and I will destroy your chariots and I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds and I will cut off your sorceries 
from your hand and you will have no more soothsayers and I will cut off your images and your pillars from among you and you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. And I will uproot your sacred poles from among you and destroy your towns. And in anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey me. Notice this final picture. The final picture of God's remnant being established. And how is he going to have his people except he is ultimately going to cut off everything that we depend upon as idols. Everything that at this time Israel turned to as their hope, God says, I'm going to take that away from you. And so you want to trust in your armies and your military might? I'm going to take that away from you so you can't. You're not going to have that anymore to think you're going to rely on that for your rescue. Because I want you to depend upon God. And you think you're going to rely on your strong cities? No, I'm going to take those away too. So that you won't depend upon your strong cities. But that you will depend upon God. And then they relied on their fortune tellers. On their sorcerers. On their magicians. I'm going to take that away from you. So that you won't depend upon those things. But you will only depend upon God. And he says then those idols and all the works of your hand. Everything you make. Everything you do. I'm going to take that away from you too so that you will only depend upon God and you will stop depending upon these other things. Now you might say, well, that just seems pretty tough and only involving Israel. But I want you to listen to how often Jesus used really the very same language when he would talk with people. Think about this notable discussion that he has in Luke 18. It's recorded in Luke 18 as well as in Matthew's account. You have a ruler and ask him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. He says, all these I have kept from my youth. I always read that and I just kind of grin. Notice what Jesus says. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. What did Jesus just do in that moment? What Jesus did was identified his idol. And said, if you want to follow me, if you want to have eternal life, you need to get rid of that idol. That's what Micah is prophesying. Everything that you depend on in your life as your support, the way you get through, the thing that you said, well, if I didn't have that, I would never make it. God comes along and goes, let me take that away from you so that you will trust me. Here is this person who's doing two things. One, he's standing on his self-righteousness and he's depending on his wealth. And God says, let me take both of those away from you so that you will see that you have a problem. And the only place you can find your help and your support is me and me alone. Jesus does that over and over again. If you spend a moment in your mind, just think about the Sermon on the Mount. Because that's exactly what the Sermon on the Mount is doing all throughout that is hitting people's idols and telling them if you think you can rely upon these things to be the people of God, you're wrong. 
And God is always in the process of prying our idols out of our hands so that we would depend upon him and him alone. This is what Micah is prophesying back here, is that this huge picture of who God is and what he's going to do is that, number one, God is the judge and he is going to bring justice. But in the meantime, what we do is we look for that deliverance and we point to Jesus as the only hope for justice. I mean, I don't know if you've ever really thought about that in terms of anything, in terms of our justice legal society. Can you think about how many things are ultimately unfair and not just? It's a lot. I mean, just, you know, if you get in trouble for committing murder or you get to spend, you know, 30 years in jail or 40 years in jail, is that really equity? Is that really you know, so often we, we, we don't see that there's something still lacking. And even with what we have in our system, there is God saying, I'm going to be the one to ultimately right the wrongs. And it's one of the reasons that we can ultimately depend upon God because we can't right the wrongs. In fact, we're told in Romans chapter 12, we're not supposed to be the ones to do that. We're not going to take vengeance. We're not going to respond in kind. We're not going to, you know, get our pound of flesh and respond and retaliate. We're going to leave these things up to God. Well, why can we do that? Because God has promised that he will bring the justice. And he will do what is right and he will deal with wickedness and he will deal with the enemies. And our hope then rests there in pointing to that hope one day that he is ultimately going to take care of these things. So true justice then is only going to be experienced as we look to God. That's what you see the people doing in chapter four. Is that they are pictured as saying we need to go to the mountain of the Lord. And we need to walk in his paths. We need to listen to what he has to say. That's where true change can only happen. Is that people listen to God. People listen to what God has to say. And hope for him to then bring ultimate justice as we walk in his ways and follow in his statutes. And so this he describes Jesus being the one who will ultimately bring that hope as he gathers the lame in and he gathers the outcast, he gathers the oppressed, he gathers the downtrodden, he feeds them and becomes their peace. And as we wait for that ultimate judgment, we then are the ones who are then seeking the blessings of God by allowing him to transform us and ripping these idols out of our hands so that we will truly follow him and listen to what he has to say. It is interesting to think about what we have seen in, in the book of, of 1 Kings. And you think about the wickedness that has been on display. And Mike is going to come on the scene and describe all that and hit on all that and say, look at all that you all are doing. Look at how awful it ultimately is. And in the process of that, try to give what true hope is all about. To look to a savior. To look to the one who can truly take care of the world's ills, who can truly solve the world's problems, who can truly right wrongs. It is interesting to me to think about throughout the New Testament that that is what you see the apostles proclaiming and Jesus himself doing. 
the cross again becomes the ultimate example. Because in the cross, the perfect son of God is executed by his own creation, by wicked hands. And I've always said to you, when those naysayers and pastors by are saying, if you're really the son of God, just come down off the cross. I would be like, you betcha, buddy. Here I come. French Fry City. Uh, let me show you who I am. Let me let me right this wrong. Let me bring this to right at that moment. Jesus' words are, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Even in Christ, as 1 Peter 2 says, he was looking toward the one who judges justly. Micah is prophesying, look to the one who judges justly. And I hope that that would be an important hope when you have in Micah's day, here are these people who are going through all kinds of sins and wickedness and terrible things. And he says, you look to the kingdom of God and you wait for God to bring that justice. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, it is often so difficult for us to allow the wrongs that we experience in life to be put into your hands. It's easy for us to want to exact vengeance to do to others as they've done to us. Lord, I pray that you would instill within our hearts a a, a greater mind and a greater attitude and a greater heart like your son, Jesus. And Lord, help us to look for the justice that you said you would ultimately bring. Lord, help us to put our hope there. Lord, that we know that every single wrong, every single bit of sin, every act of wickedness, and every injustice, you will ultimately judge on. And Lord, help us to rest in hope in the knowledge of that. And help us to see your son more clearly as that true judge and shepherd king who rules in righteousness and that we would commit our lives into his hands. And so Lord, forgive us for the times that we have tried to take matters into our own hands. Forgive us, Lord, for the times that we have tried to vindicate ourselves. Forgive us for when we've tried to fight fire with fire and we have not represented your son as we ought. But Lord, we praise you for being a God of justice. And we thank you that to know that you will not allow wickedness to go on forever. You will not allow sin to continue on forever, but that you will act. 
and that you will vindicate those who belong to you and bring a judgment to those who do not. So Lord, help us in our faith to believe that with all of our heart and to live in such a way to seek that and thus knowing that to help us seek the well-being and interest of others as we strive to serve you. Lord, thank you for your son. Thank you for the justice, but Lord, thank you for the grace that we enjoy because of his sacrifice in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes we talk about judgment of God and it's always portrayed as this huge negative and this terrible thing. But I want you to see how God paints that as a positive, that judgment is a right thing that he is ultimately going to deal with and he will ultimately accomplish. And for us then, it gives us hope as we look forward to that reality. We help you in any way come to Jesus this very night to seek his will and to follow him with all of your heart and have the hope of eternity with him. We certainly want you to do that. You can come now while we stand and while